This is the uh, inspired and holy written word of God. Let us listen in accordance with that reality. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel news, the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm big into literary analysis, and uh, Reverend Smith and I did not discuss this this week or how similar the openings of our sermons were going to be. Uh, But I like to see the story behind any given passage we consider and ask the question, why? As Reverend Smith covered, it's not just uh, what we read today is not just various points of doctrine, but they're a letter with a story that motivates everything Peter says. Why does he say what he says here? How does it connect with what he's just said in the first nine verses, right? What's he doing? That's a question that I want to draw you guys in with me to ask of this text. And I think it's an important question to ask. How does it connect to the larger frame of thought and the movement of the argument that the apostle has been making up to this point? Now, verse 1 to 9 is two verses, or two sentences, I should say. Verse 1 to 2 is two sentences, and then verse 3 to 9, that massive section we've been covering for the last couple of weeks, is all one verse and one frame of thought that Peter has been uh, spelling out for them as he kind of weaves this tapestry of grace uh, and the history of redemption. Verse 10 then picks up this theme that he left off in verse 9 with concerning this salvation, the salvation that you are currently obtaining. But he doesn't exactly tell us why he picks this theme up or why he says what he says about prophecy and about the prophets of old and about angels longing to look into these things. He just tells this to us. He doesn't say, for this, I tell you this for this reason. He just tells it. 
Now the reality is that, that he doesn't tell us why he picks up this theme of concerning this salvation, but just moves there is something that we want to inquire about. Why does he say what he says to pilgrims suffering as ostracized people? How is it of comfort and how does prophecy of old connect to inheritance salvation, the guardianship of faith, the, the, the suffering of various trials, rejoicing even though we don't see him? It's not immediately apparent. Now many commentators see this as the, the Christ model of suffering to glory, right? Jesus, having been united to Christ, we ourselves follow the pattern of Jesus' own life, moving from suffering ourselves to glory, just as it indicates in the text. And while that is a true point of doctrine that I think is indicative in this text, I don't think it's the, the reason that Peter says what he says here. What Peter is doing, I believe, is trying to locate them in history and show them how they're really swept up into the current of redemption at the height of its wave. I think of, for instance, if you were at a championship game and you're down 2-0 at halftime and the coach pulls you all into the huddle and he says, look around you. Look at the thousands of people gathered cheering you on. And you revel in that for a second. And then he draws your mind to another thing. Do you know how long we've worked for this goal to reach this moment? Do you know how much work we've put in? This day is the day of days. It's the moment you've been waiting for. It's here. It's arrived. And it gives you a sense of who you are, where you are, and how exciting and important that moment is. I think what Peter's trying to do is show them just how privileged they are in the perspective of redemptive history. And he's in effect saying, people, you're in exciting, unprecedented times. These are exciting days. I know it's hard. I know there are trials. I know pilgrim life ain't the best life. But this time now, this salvation now is the moment of moments and you have a front seat ticket to the show. And I want to cover that this evening in three ways. Prophetic inquiry, the first point. Protesting Peter is the second point. And provision of grace is the third point. Prophetic inquiry, protesting Peter, provision of grace. So Peter opens in verse 10, he says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Well, hold your horses. Where did the prophets prophesy and inquire about these things carefully? Well, all over the Old Testament. There are dozens of examples, and if I had the time... And the ability to, I would paint a mosaic with the various texts all throughout the Old Testament that, that point to the grace that was to be yours as prophesied by those lifted up by God to serve the people of God. But since we don't have that time, uh, I want to turn to just one. Isaiah chapter 19 this evening, if you'd like to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 19 to 25. Verse 19. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. 
and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry out to the Lord because of oppressors. He will send them a savior and a defender to deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So the enemies of the people of God in the Old Testament, Egypt and Assyria, included with people as a third of God's portion, of God's special people to whom he would send a defender to deliver them from their sins. Remember, Peter is writing to a region of churches in Asia Minor that are made up predominantly of Gentile believers. So where was this prophesied all over that God would include that the recipients of this gospel would be the nations? And so he's saying here, all over the Old Testament is witness to the fact that God would include the Gentiles, that he would come savingly to them, that he would deliver them. This isn't new. But that moment, says the Apostle Peter, has come. Wait, 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 wait. The Apostle Peter just said this? The Apostle who was rebuked by Paul for gatekeeping Gentile believers from entry into the covenant on the basis of circumcision, a kind of second-class identity, the Apostle Peter, who prior to the, the, the Advent or the, the, the Pentecost event, was absolutely convinced before seeing Christ and touching his wounds, was absolutely convinced that Jesus had come to reestablish a messianic kingdom on Jerusalem and ride out in judgment against Rome and subject all the nations beneath their feet. That Apostle Peter. But here, that same apostle connects them to the covenant on the basis of prophetic witness. A man who lived all his life as a Jew. And here he's saying the current of redemption has been sweeping this way all along. So this, this grace that the Gentile believers have now is connected to the moment of redemptive history. It's all a part of the plan. And Peter actually wraps them up and fuses them into the heritage of the covenant through prophetic witness. What they are talking about is now yours and you get to see it. And not only do you get to see it, you get to actually see more of it than they do. You have a better vantage point in the theater of redemption because the things that they prophesied about and the things that they saw in types and in shadows, you, Gentiles, Living in Asia, minor, you get to see it. And so what is it we have? What were the, what were the prophets inquiring about? 
We'll read verse 11. Look at this. Verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. Well, where, 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 did, the apostle, where did the prophets do this? I think on, on Daniel, for instance, who in chapter 9 comes to the Lord and he, and he says, hey, okay, so you made all these prophecies to Jeremiah about the deliverance that would be ours and we're still in Babylon and it said it would occur around this time. So what's the rub? What's the deal? And then the Lord answers him in a vision that depicts everything that was going to happen and will happen from that moment to the end of time, including the coming of Christ. And then Daniel, again in chapter 12, goes to the Lord and he says, okay, so how long shall it be until the end of all of these wonders in these 70 weeks plus one when absolute restoration will occur? And this is the answer that Daniel is left with and walks away with. He says this, God, your way, because the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the dead. Uh, until the time of the end, excuse me. Ezra said, how long? When will these things be? Do you think that I shall live until those days in the face of the prophecies about the deliverance that was promised to him and the deliverer who was promised to him? And perhaps my favorite of these three was what three was Habakkuk. And he makes inquiry too. He says, when, where? They languish for it. Habakkuk, in the opening chapter, what is going on? When are you going to deliver? How can you be doing what you're doing through this wicked and unrighteous nation to your people? This is the answer he gets. The vision awaits its time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. The righteous shall live by his faith. That must have made Habakkuk trip. The righteous shall live by his faith. Whose faith? I know. You know. Peter knew. Habakkuk trusted from far off, desiring to know. But we actually get to know. We actually get to see him who was pierced for our iniquity. What exciting times! With the prophets of old, the servants of the Lord, in the most wicked of times, longed and languished passionately inquiring about regarding the grace of God and its timing and its deliverer, you now get to see woven together in the person and the work of Christ and testified to by the operation of the Spirit through the apostolic witness and refreshed and proclaimed each and every week through the preaching and the teaching of the Word. That is exciting. That is not mundane. That isn't on your favorite podcast. But the Apostle Peter wasn't always so on board with this. At one time, he was a protester to these truths, the suffering of Christ and the layout of redemption. 
Now, of course, in verse 12, he says that these, these very things, the suffering of Christ and these times have been announced and preached to them through those like himself by the Spirit. But it wasn't always this way for him, which makes what he says here quite significant. You'll remember that it was the Apostle Peter who, who drew his sword when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to arrest Christ. You'll remember that at the supper in John chapter 13, Jesus gets down, he strips himself, he gets into the very clothing of a servant, and he goes to wash the disciples' feet, and, and Peter says, you shall not wash my feet. Why? It's unbecoming of the Messiah to, to do the, the role of a servant. And this was a, both of these events, of course, were after the fact that Peter had confessed Christ to be the Messiah and then was responded with the reality that flesh and blood did not, receive, uh, did not reveal this to him, but it was revealed from the Father. In Mark 8, Jesus foretells his suffering and death. He says it explicitly. He says this, that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then in verse 32 of the passage, it adds this, somewhat ironically in light of our passage today. And he said these things plainly. And then what happens? Peter pulls him aside. He rebukes him. And Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Fast forward. After the crucifixion, before the resurrection, the apostles are in the upper room trying to figure out what to do in a panic. We had this whole mob stirred up, the triumphal entry. Everybody believed that he was the son of David come to ascend the throne. And now we are the chief associates of a crucified false messiah, so they would think. What do we do? Jesus appears to the apostles on the Emmaus Road. They come and testify. It takes him appearing to them in the upper room. That's how blind they were. So there's an irony to this whole thing for Peter, Peter to say this. Yeah, this, this whole thing was foretold not only by Jesus, but also by the prophets, and they were serving you, the people of God, in this pre present age? They, pro they prophesied these things? Isaiah 53, can't get more clear than this for Peter. Prior to his eye-opening, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he did not open his mouth. Like the lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its hearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off in the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peter would have known it all. And Peter, who once could not be more blind, is looking all, at all of this in verse 12, and he says, they served us. And he's excited about it. 
says, we're now the inheritors of the fullness and the arrival of these things, witnessing them plainly before our eyes. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to look forward. We can look back. That's not that we're better. That's not his point here. But from our standpoint in history, we are more privileged. They served us in that they prophesied about the grace that was to be ours, things they saw in shadow, but that we now see clearly. And so Peter, of all people who was totally blind beforehand, is stoked when he looks at this. He who was once, who, who once petulantly protested could not be more porous with his heart. And he allows us to see his joy at the revelation and the reception of these things. And so surely he remembers the words of Jesus in Matthew 13. Blessed are you, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see, and to hear, and you, uh, 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 and you hear, to hear what you hear, and they did not hear. So Peter understands how rich the provision of God's grace is. That's what got him so pumped. He doesn't, he doesn't look at life for the people of God as pilgrims in the wilderness and say, shoot, man, this stinks real bad. He's not dominated by sorrow, by grief. Oh, you haven't seen him. You're, you're, you, you suffer various trials. You haven't seen him. You love him. In this you rejoice, obtaining the outcome of your, uh, the outcome of your salvation And concerning this salvation, guess what? The prophets, they prophesied about it. And this is yours. And you now look upon him who was pierced for your transgressions plainly. I love what I think he's doing here. It's beautiful. He's picking up on on the salvation that you're in process of obtaining and saying, People of God, you might be hard-pressed because you don't see Him. Because life is difficult, but the provision of God's grace for you is such that now nobody has had it better. Nobody's had it easier. Not only do you have more information to go off, but look at the way that He actually weaves the operation of the Spirit in in verse 11 and 12. In verse 11, he calls him the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament. So closely identifying uh, Christ with his Spirit, that the, he, he's saying the Old Test, in the Old Testament, Christ was himself by the Spirit, his own Spirit, working to reveal himself to the prophets. And now, even though these things have already happened and Christ has come, that same Spirit has been sent from heaven to testify to these realities. So in, in terms of the movement of redemptive history, this is the climactic point in the lived experience of the people of God. We know things and we see things that those sacred men of old, and actually even angels desire to know. We're privileged people. 
I know by testimony of the Spirit in the preached word that Christ bled and died for me. You can't get anything better than that. Sure, you can't see him right now. And what's the proof, by the way? The prophecy. The prophecy come true. That he was pierced for your transgression on that cursed tree. So we're not, we're not sitting around the campfire while in the wilderness whining and complaining about our lived experience and about how bad the bread is or how we want more. Actually, what, what we're dominated by excitement and obsession with the thing that really matters and that all of history and even cosmic beings are wound up trying to know and dying to know. Now, for pilgrims in the wilderness, people living under the, under the boot of Rome, they might be bound to wonder, why, why are we ostracized? Why are we suffering? Okay, if all of these things are true, right? If all of these things are true and, and, and Jesus did suffer and now he's entered into glory, why does it stink so bad, though? Yeah, sure, prophets prophesied about these things concerning Jesus, and we know, and we, we have proof of that, but we're here suffering, so what's the deal? Well, these things were also prophesied, too, in the Old Testament. And so, as Reverend Smith put it this morning, are you okay with these terms? Yeah, I'm okay with these terms because the th these things too are prophesied and everything has come to pass in accordance with the testimony of scriptures. And not only was my suffering as a pilgrim prophesied in the Old Testament, but it was also prophesied by Christ himself. And so actually, that's how in control of creation God is. That hundreds of years after these things were prophesied, it all came to pass in accordance with his power, in accordance with his mill, uh, will, in accordance with his might, and in accordance with his ordering of creation and salvation. So how do I know it's going to be okay while I'm a pilgrim? Because I see in the fulfillment of the prophecy of Christ the one that all of creation was longing to know prior to his arrival, that God's in control of creation. So it's not grumble and complain like the Israelites did at Meribah. It's actually gather around the campfire and dance. Dance for joy. Because you have something so beautiful and so good that nothing else compares. And it's all testimony to the fact that he's got the whole world in his hands, including our lives each and every day while we suffer as pilgrims, ostracized in society, with worn-out wineskins. But also it's a, a sort of lesson for us. 
to be fixated on the right thing and excited about the right thing. If the prophets and the angels wanted to know what was going to happen and they were stoked for it, how much more should we be if we can see the fulfillment of these prophecies in the apostolic witness to the person and the work of Christ Jesus and if we can taste and see Him in the bread and wine? A groom never tires of that moment and does not look away the moment that his bride walks down the aisle. So since we can see him in his beauty and his grace and his power and his goodness, oh boy, we have exciting things that ought to evoke our full attention. This is the thing of things to be fixated on. This is the thing of things to be dominated with joy about, to be excited about, to be fixated with. And not only is that the ought, not only ought we to be fixated with Christ, do you know what remedies the anguish the suffering, the hardships, the troubles, the anxieties of everyday life. Looking at Jesus. Like Peter is. Obsessed with just how great it is that we get to see him. Now we could add that makes this assembly pretty rad, doesn't it? Because what's this reorienting or often wayward minds to? What's this putting on the theater screen instead of the troubles of everyday life or our own wants or our own needs or our own desires? Jesus. It puts him on display right on the big screen. It tells us to look at him. Him whom all of redemptive history revolves around. To look at him with a clear picture. He is the important thing that we should be pretty stinking excited to see him. To know him. To look at him. And nothing should be less exciting than that. I can go out of worship and say, I heard Jesus. I saw Jesus. I know Jesus. And he gave his life for me on Calvary. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the testimony of the scriptures, for the testimony of the Spirit in our hearts, leading us to Christ. Father, we ask that Christ would continue to be held forth as the object of our desire, as the one who our thoughts are consumed with each and every day of our lives. For we ask by the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.